Welcome to another day of Who the Hell New Project. Today I'm with Naba Rupa, who likes to go by her short name, Naba. Naba has accomplished so much in such little time that it's hard to put it all together in one introduction, but I'm going to give it a try. She is head of product at Sam's Club. Yes, that's the younger sister to Walmart, the giant. She is a renowned public speaker and has spoken at several conferences. Let me actually make an attempt at trying to list some of those down. She has spoken at JK Group's Product Intelligence Summit, Wervicon, Etail West 2018, ML Summit, Mobile Shopping Summit, Product Analytics Summit, Mixed Panel. I think I can go on and on. I might need fingers in my hand and toes, all of that, and I still won't be able to count all of them. So maybe I, sh I should just stop there. And only when you thought that managing a business, a family, zillion engagement gigs was not enough. She's also working on her own book. Phew, Nava, how do you do it all? Only when you thought that this question won't come back to you, it is coming back to you. Tell us how do you do it all? Uh, thank you so much, Mamta. I feel like you're too kind and you, uh, you make what I do on a day-to-day -day basis sound extraordinary and special. And that's what's so wonderful about talking to another really special woman. I think we do need to lift each other as we climb. And uh, these little things where you just lead your life and you're constantly questioning yourself that am I really doing a good job? You know, I'm probably um, dropping so many balls and forgetting to see the balls that I'm actually carrying. So you just um, going through this very, very kind introduction <laughs> just made my day. So um, the only thing I would say is I don't have it all together. I am constantly questioning and doubting myself. But one thing that I have learned over the years is to prioritize your life just like you would prioritize your work as a product manager. So I have I've also realized that looking forward, I have fewer years left to live than the number of years I have left behind me. I have to be very picky about the people I am with, the things that I do. So I don't do laundry. I don't cook, you know, I don't volunteer at my kids' school. I love spending time with my kids, but I also know that there's only so much I can do. Even at work, I have decided that there are things that I love to do and there are things where I just don't feel energized. So wherever possible, I ask for help. You know, I, I delegate, I am just very, very picky about where I spend my time. And so I end up doing a lot of things that I love to do and I do not do the things that I do not love to do. And that is probably the biggest secret of why it feels like I am able to do so much. Wow, give us, give us a few examples of what you don't do at work. Because like from the outside, <laughs> it appears like you're doing it all. <laughs> so I actually spent a lot of time hiring an amazing team. Hmm. When everybody asks me, uh, what is your secret to being a good leader, a great product manager, a product manager uh, job automatically teaches you the importance of ruthless prioritization. Mm -hmm. So when you are an individual contributor, there are so many problems you can solve. There are so many features you can build. And you're constantly questioning and using data to then determine what are the top things we should do. And I recently read a book called Designing Your Life, which uses a product management approach to life. It, it pretty much resonates my philosophy of life. So at work, for example, uh, I I'm not really good at project management. I'm not a very organized person. So when it comes to laying down processes, following up with people to make sure they're following the process, 
I don't do that. I'm just not good at that. But I surround myself with people who are very good at that. So just to counterbalance my chaos, <laughs> I will get people who are very organized and who will make sure that whether it's regular recurring team meetings, touch bases, processes that the team needs. So these are very important, especially in a large organization. But I ask for help and I get people around me who, who do that. But I am really good about creative brainstorming, about uh, there's this artistic side of me that's constantly looking at new ways to solve problems. So I spend a lot of time doing that, which is encouraging that in people or doing a lot of brainstorming. Uh, when people are stuck, how do I unblock them? So I just hire great people, I unblock them you know, when they are stuck and I do a lot of creative brainstorming. And then magic just happens. When you get a great team, you empower them. This is fabulous and I think this is a great segue into like, you know, the two categories that I wanted to talk about, you know, just for everyone else's benefit, <clears throat> those two categories are, I did want to talk about product management, best practices, and one thing that I wanted to touch upon was, you know, how to build a good team. Second is diversity and specifically we had talked about in our previous um, interaction about feedback for women and how that can help the problem of diversity that, you know, that is being talked about a lot. But just going back to our first theme, um, and, and we were just talking about building a good team. You mentioned one attribute of building a good team is having a good diversity of skill set. What are some of the other things, according to you, that define a good team? Because you know, a lot of people talk about it, but there isn't a good sense of what does that truly mean? Like, what is a good team? Yeah. So I lead a product management team, right? So. How big I, is your team, by the way, now? So we approximately have, I think, 28 people on our wow. team. So it's it's a pretty big team Huge. doing a whole bunch of things. I look for a few traits in people. I definitely look for a very strong ownership mindset, mm -hmm. which I think is required whether you're a product manager or not, but it is especially required if you're a product manager. Uh, Walmart used to be um, a very typical IT company where the business team would give us a bunch of things to do and then we had to go execute them. So I have even changed my hiring style based on how we have evolved as a company and as a product management team. I used to hire really strong execution people before, that people who can take something and then just run with it and uh, make sure that every use case is covered, every every milestone is reached, and uh, and the thing goes live on the date it was supposed to go live, very few bugs, till I realized that that's not it. There's got to be more to life than that. Then I started hiring people who were naturally entrepreneurial, you know, who could find out the problems, who could take a goal, a very ambiguous, hairy goal, like, okay, we need to improve first-year member retention. We are a membership organization at Sam's Club, so it's not just revenue. We are looking at how do we get people to come, first of all, know about us, uh, pay money to shop with us, and then keep coming back and renewing their membership and coming back again and again. So I had to get people who are not just passionate about doing projects. They had to be passionate about what's this company for? How are we helping our customers? So they had to have a very strong customer empathy. They had to have a very strong sense of why like not just being happy with given a task to do but being happy with only when they know what is the mountain that they have to move so um, and then on top of that or that ownership mindset you just don't say that i just did it from here to here if something else goes wrong it's somebody else's problem like this person needed yeah, to know problem. yeah exactly like when i first came to sam's club i remember our ceo had said what would you do naba if this was your business how would you grow this to a 
to 5x what it is today and my first thought was no one has ever asked me this question and it was just this amazing euphoric and yet um, very scary feeling that if this was really my business what would i do but i went back and i realized that again the best product manager is not the one who comes up with all the ideas themselves because no human being can come up with all the ideas themselves and it's a misconception that a oh, great product managers are always great visionaries they have it all figured out mm-hmm. great product managers are people who can collaborate with others and then find out what the best ideas are who can articulate the problem really really clearly who can tell the team and get them excited about what success means this is the problem we are trying to solve we will know we have solved it when we hit this number or this happens and then once we have solved the problem what are we going to do to keep making the product awesome to keep our customers coming back again and again and sometimes they will even put that product to bed and come up with a new product altogether because they are married to the problem mm-hmm. not the solution mm-hmm. and it's hard to find such people but you do you know, and and you talk to them you ask them examples of stuff that they have done in the past and you see natural curiosity in them and this very very strong sense of ownership i probably said ownership like three times now mm-hmm. um they are naturally intelligent they care about the customer um and they they are just fun to be around so those are the kind of people i look for honestly yeah. in my team yeah so I, I now when you talked about like hiring a certain profile of folks who demonstrate a certain skill set mm-hmm. um you know the current organization that i work for <coughs> i'm a leader there responsible for um you know our people uh, which is like consultants they're in, you know hire acquisition retention engagement professional development so on and so so forth i think hiring while it's difficult it's something that you can control the bigger problem that i have seen is how do you shift the culture of your existing team to start to marry the direction that you want your team to grow in so any ideas and thoughts around like you know how would you train some of your existing team members to start to demonstrate these skills that you just talked about so we kind of went through this culture change in walmart mm-hmm. right that I, as i said that i was supposed to be a really good pm and the reason why i was supposed to be a good pm was because I knew the systems in and out. Yeah. Like any time a difficult problem came up or someone wanted to do a very difficult project, they would come and pick me and say that, "Let's give this to Naba." And I would say, "Yeah, I know this system talks to this system. This change needs to be done there. That's yeah. why." Till I realized that uh, the ecosystem had changed and we we really needed to step our game up. Mm. And it happened um honestly to some extent the things that cause culture change are external factors mm-hmm. you see the industry changing you see that you're falling behind and you know that you are probably not doing something right mm-hmm. uh the other thing happens when you inject external blood into your culture so what i have always been um curious about is it it's very easy for us to think we are walmart right we are the fortune 1 company and when someone else comes and says you know what you may not be doing this right you often feel like do you realize we are walmart you know the the world does what we do that mindset is the one that actually gets you into trouble right because mm-hmm. then you get so happy with what you're doing you close your mind to external input and external or cr- any kind of critical feedback is really hard to take but how do you listen to it uh not take it personally but actually say what can i learn out of this so um and i have often told the story about um 
about the famous supply chain consultant you know who <laughs> who came and um, I was telling him about how our systems work there, a, yeah, it's a very it. interesting story so <laughs> like I, this was this was it. back in my heydays right where I was this very famous supply chain PM and they sent this hotshot consultant straight to me saying go talk to her she knows all the systems and I started explaining to him I still remember type 7 purchase order how does the flow work and he's like you know what typically companies don't do this and I said what do you mean by typically we are Walmart and you're telling me typically but he persisted and then he asked me you know this metric question about do you know the back order rate and I just remember being mortified that I didn't know the metric I knew the systems and how they worked I just had no idea about the metrics I was influencing and so I just had two choices I could murder him or marry yeah. him like there, there are the only two ways to to shut I'm someone down so I took the I took the less violent but more painful <laughs> option of, of marrying him and uh, congratulations and thank you thank you I, I love him to death but he is he's honestly the reason probably why I morphed into the PM that I am today learned a lot from him and people like him like we needed people like that to come from outside and tell us Actually, there's more ways to do this, do this better than the way you do it here. And hearing that, learning from that, uh, reading a lot of books, like just, so that, I think culture change happens when you open your mind up. Mm -hmm. You get people who can be bar raisers, who can be role models, who you can watch. You'll use data, you see that someone else has been successful when they tried something else, and that then helps slowly. And it also, there's also self-selection that happens. There are people on my team who were amazing at one point of time, but as times changed and the bar got raised, they realized that this was not just for them. You know, A players at times become C players. And then you just have an honest conversation with them saying that, look, the bar has been raised. Do you want to rise up to this? Or is this just not right for you? And then we can have an honest conversation and they can either go their way or they can take it up as a challenge and rise up to the challenge. Yeah. So I've had all of those, you know, some of those difficult conversations as well. But as a result, we are where we are, and I'm very proud of the team that we have built. That is such a phenomenal story, and I think pretty much everything you described, Nava, like not only does that apply to a, a you know, a, a people-focused team, but that does translate into the company itself, right? Like, yeah. you know, like if the company is not open to change, then yeah. you know that is really kind of like the yeah. cause for death, uh, and everything else that you described. Um, wonderful. So now I wanted to take a step back. Um, you know, in the recent years, I've spoken with a bunch of folks, you know, women and men who have expressed interest in making that transition. If you had one suggestion for those folks, what would that be? I would say that um, avoid falling in love with the solution. As engineers, we get so nerdy and so in love with, let's use uh, machine learning to solve this problem. Or let's, I have had PMs who have come to me and said, I had this amazing idea of you know, doing this thing with 3D printing and it went nowhere. I said, of course it went nowhere because you started with 3D printing. If you would have come and said that I'm going to solve this problem that is going to cut down you know, calls to the call center by half, you would have had everybody's attention at that point of time. And your solution may not have held any water, but the fact that you started with a problem that you want to solve and you had a clear metric of that defined success then you would have gotten the budget and the time to try various different solutions. You know, Start with something very simple, then build on, add more technology to it. But when, when transitioning from engineering to product, we, we jump very quickly into, okay, so what you need me to do is make this change to this table here and do this there, as opposed to really spending 70% of the time understanding the customer problem, understanding what success means, 
defining that really really clearly and then jumping to the solution and then continuously having a testing plan to see as i keep building the solution out again we do these big bangs as engineers that i will build the most beautiful building and the tallest tower in the city and everyone will look at it and admire it but instead it's like let me build the hut which will at least give the shelter needed and then i will know did i even start out right so having a very clear test iterate and learning plan as you keep launching those are mindset shifts that i have had to do and i have been a culprit of this my first product i drew out the wireframes i designed the whole thing talked to one customer and i was like this is so beautiful everyone is going to love it and then no one used it <laughs> so we have i've had those those things after which like a lot of bitter learnings later i was like okay no that's not the right way to do it this is this is great advice i'm sh- definitely going to reuse that if i ever speak with anyone else who you know presents the same question to me because this is like beautifully put um on the topic of you know building a hut or a shelter that no one uses or the topic of like you know uh, a product that didn't quite work um this is a very common you know problem that even product managers run into um just because you are so close to everything that you have done to make that even possibility or a reality when it doesn't work out it's so disheartening What are some of your suggestions on how to like stay away from that emotional bond that you land up creating uh to actually saying you you know this didn't work out here's the learning and here's how we are going to pivot yeah. um, so anything you you want to share there and i i remember you had in your one of your talks you had specifically talked about a solution that was built for Sam's Club uh you know for solving an out of stock inventory that didn't work at all yeah um so I'd love to hear that story and and the learning from that yeah yeah happy to share that I've lots of failure stories um that happy to share different kinds of failure stories uh but this one again I I feel bad because of the PMs um I have I have this am- amazingly talented PM Swagata who worked on this project and Kerry Wok who was the business partner on this project and and i feel like in many ways it's not a failure right it was a huge learning story but i think it's the synaptic leap that we made from uh the three questions product managers ask themselves is is this a real people problem you know second is how will we know that we have solved the problem and then once we have solved the problem how do we keep learning and iterating and getting better along the way like these are the three main questions that that you you keep asking yourself So the people problem we were trying to solve is we knew there was a huge NPS impact to the in-store shopping experience because maybe one out of every four customers was not finding the product um in the shelf that they had come to look for either because it was out of stock or uh, that product had been replaced with a new product some reason so we knew that this was a problem that we wanted to solve we also knew that uh, some of the data that we were looking at is not just qualitative data but also quantitative uh which is we were looking at searches done on mobile mobile app on the sams mobile app when people were in the inside the club that people were searching for items they were looking for location and the solution we came up with we thought this was very disruptive innovation because we said okay we have not been able to solve the inventory and out of stock issues what if we let them get the same product online what if we show them this endless aisle solution this kiosk in the club where you can search for the product and then get it shipped to your home as opposed to um finding it there and what we what we did is as part of mvp again mvp this term has gotten a bad rap because it's often whatever you can build in the time that is there which is not what mvp should be it is that's right the the minimum testable solution that lets you test your hypothesis does it actually solve the customer problem 
So we made some assumptions. We said that in the store setting, people are probably not going to be searching. People are going to be coming there and browsing and going through various items to see does this catch my interest. But we had, and my boss Eddie Garcia had said, everybody searches, user behavior has changed where search is the primary mode of shopping. And we did not launch our MVP with search capability. We were also worried that we were going to go live with one category. We were afraid, what if somebody searches for another category? What will we show them? So given our technical limitations, we launched a product that was pretty much not usable. The other thing that we found was uh, an endless aisle kiosk is very visible when it's standing next to a developer's desk. But in the giant steel and all those racks and crying babies and shopping carts and a Sam's Club, probably a little kiosk, the kiosk dwarfs in comparison, yeah. unless you have these giants. So there was a visibility problem, there was a usability problem. And then um, there was also no clear reason why customers should even engage with a kiosk in the middle of shopping. They had come there with a very clear purpose that I have come here to buy from this shopping list. And if I, if I see something that catches my interest, I will buy it. So. So what happened was it ended up being us pushing our agenda on the customer saying, come online and look at all this amazing stuff we have and get the product you were looking for. When people there had a very clear intent that they wanted to buy what they wanted to buy. Why is it not here right now? Mm -hmm. So we ended up seeing people wanting to search. So we built search. Then they get searching for where is it in the club? And they wanted club specific. They wanted instant the gratification. So we went through multiple iteration after iteration after iteration. But what was good in this whole process with Swagata, Kerry, and the team is they had their metrics very clear. They had an acquisition metric that how many sessions per week are happening, how much conversion are we getting from this aisle, and, and how much ROI overall are we getting from here. While some of the customers who engaged with it, liked it, bought from it, we were getting some high purchases. But overall, our adoption goals were not getting met. Conversion goal was not getting met. So by keeping in, and, and what we also did is we had a weekly review of the metrics. Like while we were launching this in various clubs, we never lost sight of what success meant. We were very attached to this because of which we didn't abandon it probably as soon as we should have. Mm. But, we, um, but we went forward and we kept measuring and we saw ultimately that product market fit was not achieved. We also realized that when you say test, learn, iterate, doesn't mean that you keep iterating on the same solution. You actually sometimes need to completely pivot and try. A, so keep iterating on solutions to solve the problem. But sometimes we mistake and we like, if I build one more feature, people will love it. And you just get lost. So these are some of the traps that you get yourself into. There's one more thought in it. I was looking at my slides with the kiosk and my 12-year-old uh, my daughter comes and says, don't build kiosks, mommy. People don't like kiosks. Have you seen the Studio C video of the crazy mall kiosk guy? I was like, this girl could have told me that this is not a good idea. So she said, people get distracted when they're shopping on a kiosk. You know, be, other people keep interrupting them. Wow. She had so much clarity as a 12-year-old, 12, 12 which should have just been common sense. But sometimes you just fall in love with the solution, right? That this beautiful kiosk, this amazing view. And, and I still feel it was a great product. It just didn't solve the problem that wow. it was meant to solve. That is so, so cool. I'm, I'm curious to hear, like, if you pivoted to other solutions outside of kiosks, uh, one obvious one that comes to mind is potentially providing the same capability on your mobile on phone, your mobile phone, which is something you carry. So more over. to come on that. You okay. know, we are definitely that's one of our um, top customer pain points. And it's a it's a prioritized project on our roadmap this year. We are definitely working on different solutions. One is just making uh, inventory management in the club much better. And some of the solution could be crowdsourced inventory information that mm -hmm. as opposed to waiting for once a day feeds, which update the inventory information, 
could we potentially have associates and customers tell us that something is out of stock you know, sooner than a feed would have told us. So we are thinking about that. We are also thinking about using your own mobile phone uh, where we can give this information to you. We are thinking about store mode versus uh, .com mode of the app. So lots of things in the pipeline that we have some really smart people working on, which doesn't Wonderful. involve a kiosk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we know that now yeah. from a 12-year-old. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Um, it's, it's really interesting you say uh, a lot of this because um, on the Walmart side, you know, we're working on some of these things as well. Um, so it's exciting and maybe offline, you know, would love to hear some learnings. Absolutely, you know, right yeah. And in fact, I wanted to share with you a little story, you know, as I was going through your presentation that you presented at uh, Product Anal Analytics Summit, I realized that we have a lot in common. Mm. Um, I, I heard you talk about check-in, scan and go. Um, and then you also had a picture of two gentlemen on your on your slides. Eaton and Burke. Eaton yeah. and Burke. I work with them very closely now. They're my counterparts from an engineering standpoint. What a great team. Yes. Um, check in. I mentioned to you, like, yeah. it was a solution that I launched for Walmart to chain in 2016. Uh, so as I, was, as I was going through that, I was like, there is so much more in common and, and the world is so small. Or I maybe, know. Or maybe the circle that we move in is small. Who knows? Uh, but, but, you know, we are multi-channel retailers, right? And we are all uh, trying to solve customer problems. And there's no point reinventing the wheel there are some things that we know work and some things that don't Absolutely. and I, I love that we share talent across the two companies and we are able to gain so much leverage Absolutely. out of that and then you talked a little bit about crowdsourcing um, and I personally believe that there is a huge application of crowdsourcing mm -hmm. to retail business so companies like you know Google are already leveraging that uh, on an exhaustive and extensive basis in order to build their information base, and based on that, then they provide solutions. Um, so I don't know if you've noticed, like if you walk out of a, a business now, there is an immediate notification you'll get that'll say rate this business and provide us more information. So it's very real time, very contextual, very top of mind. Um, and the application of this in context of retail, which I think you already to some extent described, uh, for example, having our customers tell us about what is out of mm -hmm. stock on in real time, contextual very way is so powerful. And it's so much more easier to do that with maybe like, you know, a billion shoppers across your 6,000 stores than us deploying manpower to do that yeah. for us whom you have to pay. So right. I think from both sides, it's such a win-win solution. That, yeah. uh, I'm, I'm excited that that is already being explored. Yes, yeah. yes. Fabulous. I want to switch gears to the other side of, um, you know, the, the theme that I wanted to, to touch on, which is, you know, driving gender parity in workplace. And I, as I mentioned earlier, I wanted to touch specifically on one aspect of, uh, you know, what can make a huge difference in this space during our last conversation, which is around providing feedback to women and how that can really help move the needle. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your thoughts there, Naba. Yeah, yeah, sure. So this is a topic that I feel very strongly about. I know that a lot of people are talking about it. Diversity and inclusion are the new buzzwords and every company either forcefully or really from the heart wants to make a difference just because we are looking at sheer numbers and they just don't make sense of the ratio of women versus men. I look at the number of people climbing up the corporate ladder and I look at a tipping point beyond which women just seem to fall off. Mm -hmm. And There's and a clear pattern around yeah, that. And, mm -hmm. I, and I keep thinking that is it really discrimination or is it something that that is just happening, a phenomena that's organically, because I do believe that 
people mean well. I think there are unconscious biases that are all around us. Mm-hmm. But I have seen very well-intentioned. I have seen myself where at times um, a, a female employee is not doing well, and I'm having to have a crucial conversation with them. And and I and I and I've realized that one of my theories is around feedback. This is a very very important topic. And what I uh, and it really hit home when there was this associate on my team who was going through a really really tough time, and he wanted to work remotely. And um, I remember going through a similar tough situation. And Walmart was very kind to me. My manager came and had a conversation with me, saying that don't worry, the company is behind you, and you do what you need to do. And I felt like I performed better than ever that year because I knew that I was going through a personal crisis, but my company was behind me. They trusted me. and so it it freed me up of any kind of tension that oh my god what if i'm not able to come into work blah blah i knew that the time i had i could do my best and i was not being judged i had all this support but here i was faced with a situation many years later where i was a manager and this associate needed to work remotely because of the situation he was in mm-hmm. and i was asked to um potentially let him go or figure out alternative solutions i started crying at that point I just had tears in my eyes that I started crying. And this uh, this person who was talking to me said that you know now but this is the problem. This is what I have heard about you. I've heard that you just get too emotional and at your level being a leader crying just you know you shouldn't be crying. You shouldn't be getting this emotional. And and I said that and we talk about inclusion and diversity in the workplace. If you want more women leaders in the workplace, you need to get used to more tears. because i cry you know i i won't cry all the time i won't throw tantrums just like that but this this is a very difficult call that i am having to make about an associate who's perfectly good he's very talented because of the situation he needs this adjustment and we are having a very logical conversation about can we make it work for him and it just reminded me of what i had gone through and and the pain that he's go so anyway i was emotional about it the very same day i had a conversation with my husband who was also a manager at walmart at the time and he said that someone on his team came and spoke to him he had a touch base and she just burst out in tears and he said that he just was mortified at that point of time and he just didn't want to give her feedback anymore because she had cried and and he just he just stopped he just froze at that point of time so i realized then that first of all i kind of snapped at this person who 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 was mm-hmm. not comfortable with my tears and i probably shut down any future conversations with him at that point and with my husband what had happened was the tears had mortified him so much that he would probably think twice before giving feedback to this woman i immediately imagined a parallel universe where these conversations were happening with men instead of women and probably this man wouldn't have been emotional about this decision he would have probably said yeah it's a very unfortunate thing but yeah we need to do what we need to do and not cried about it and they would have continued the conversation and he would have been heralded as this amazing manager mm-hmm. who takes the right call at the right time and similarly if my husband would have been giving feedback to a man they would have probably said uh great you know this is the feedback let's go have a beer and we are all good and and then my husband would have probably given him feedback again next time when something came up this person would have had the benefit of feedback as a gift and they would have improved so long story short i was like are we automatically preventing feedback from coming because we are crying and that's creating this modification among people and i said and then can i really do anything about it can i stop my tears can i just because many people will tell you toughen up now just be tough and i realized that we just have we are hormonally we are just built differently 
I I honestly cannot do anything about my tears. Like I can try very hard, but then the tears will just come out more, yeah. right? So you just have. Um, I even forget the name of this hormone that that women have in double amount of estrogen. E- estrogen and uh, prolactin. Prolactin. That is just naturally present in us, which causes tears. We have shallower tear glands than men do. I've done a lot of research on this, <laughs> which is which also causes more tears to come. And testosterone, uh, testosterone automatically inhibits tears, which we do not have in huge quantities. So we are naturally just um, at an unfair adva- you know, position as compared to men because we are prone to tears. So what does this mean? So if we are really serious about getting more women in the workplace and about seeing women grow, it means we as a workplace need to be more comfortable with tears. So what I told my husband is that when you were giving feedback, even though she was crying, did you notice that her ears were still open? She was still listening. So when someone is crying, remember that her eyes may be watering up, but her ears are still listening. Give her a tissue and just keep going. Or tell her, let's take a break. And I really want you to hear this because this is important. And just keep giving. And she's going to go home. She's going to think about it. She may cry some more, but she will come back the next day and she'll give you her point of view. That, you know what, I heard you. I either take action on it or not. She may not be chill about it at that moment. She, she will give you but you cannot stop giving feedback to her. Similarly, leaders cannot be perceived as weak leaders just because they feel empathy and they cry. So we as a workplace, as we become inclusive, we really need to talk the talk and we need to be open to tears and emotions and just problems being solved in a different way. Like every, that, that is what diversity is all about. It doesn't mean simply getting a lot of women and thrusting into the same environment and expecting them to behave the exact same, same way. way. Mm-hmm. It's about being open to how they behave it's being open to how they solve problems in a completely different way mm-hmm. and that's when magic will happen so i'll get so, off my yeah. <laughs> so but no, clearly i'm very a, passionate about this topic that's a, that's a very um, i want to say hair raising moment because <laughs> i'm getting goosebumps <laughs> right here uh, as you were sharing the story naba i i thought about you know what i want to share like i in workplace i don't cry at all in my personal life I'm a cry baby uh, and and maybe I have like taught myself yeah. to be that way yeah. over the years um, so one like it's not even a norm but we still get you know um, pigeonholed into that you know the general perception that people have that oh women are more emotional and they but cry but you know not only that right that and then if you don't cry then you are stone cold yeah right you have that too because I told the story to my then CFO Anne Myung who's not with Walmart anymore and she said now I have the opposite problem I don't cry at all and then people say aren't you a woman aren't you supposed to be more empathetic yeah so she's like I have the other problem so either you are an emotional roller coaster or you are completely stone cold you know you cannot win so I said I know lots of people have trained themselves I have too right that I you obviously come into the workplace you have to desensitize yourself to some extent whether mm-hmm. you are prone to crying or not that at the end of the day it's not personal people right. are doing people like talented people get laid off like the company goes through a crisis and things happen or you are just not right for the job like we have to have those tough conversations what i'm saying is if someone cries don't stop having those tough conversations and if you inhibit the feedback because you see someone reacting differently than you mm-hmm. expected don't stop that Absolutely. And let women be themselves, right? Whether yeah. she decides to be emotional or not, let that be her choice as opposed to ex- pigeonholing us into one bucket. Absolutely. And and so like what I wanted to kind of highlight as you were describing this story, um, what I took away was that because historically, you know, most workplaces had a very um, 
non heterogeneous mm-hmm. make of who run ran those workplaces everyone got used to what is the normal mm-hmm. right and now that more diverse workforce it's is a actually, new normal yeah. so there is a need to actually establish a new normal mm-hmm. um, not just in context of potentially like feedback you very well described like what is the new normal when it comes to providing feedback to you know female colleagues versus male colleagues but if we were to extend this to many other applications i think there is a need to establish the new norm yeah um, this can be applied to if you're talking about you know folks with a different racial background like what is the new normal when they are in the workplace yeah uh, just to make sure that we are understanding the background that they're coming from you know the experiences that they might have had and and what is normal for them may not be normal for us so i feel like w- as you were describing the story this is what struck to me that i think there's just a need of educating people to understand that hey this is a new normal because this is the make of our new workforce yeah. and and be get used to it exactly. like, you know don't fight it just like big companies you know they still have to innovate and get used to the change in marketplace yeah. like you have also got to get used to that change exactly so that's, that's uh, but that was a very emotional story <laughs> <laughs> thank you for sharing we are almost out of time but i want to ask you one last question sure you are writing a book naba are you sharing what that is about yet or is that something we should look forward to in the future yeah so my idea is to write about product management at a big company that's that's what i i feel like product management related books have been written but what i want to talk about is um like many people know about startups and you know hard thing about hard things ben horowitz's book uh but i've so far only seen a chapter in marty kagan's book about product management at big companies and the challenges that come along with it especially as companies like google and facebook which started off as startups are now facing big company problems mm-hmm. right the the growth the banks problem. which is and uh, while the primary composition of these companies were made with like really young people they are now seeking out more senior people because they realize that you kind of need that um those battle scars and those that kind of experience and that's a thing which i think a big company trained this this pros cons of all of it but how do you work on giant ambiguous problems you know how do you work with um 20 teams 100 engineers where you are coordinating across multiple teams how do you get people united with a common mission when you when it's not just one product that you're working on and then you have stores and you have online and you have to create a seamless experience across the two so many things and then how do you interview at a big company how do you succeed how do you navigate career at a big company when everyone doesn't know everybody uh, one hand doesn't talk to the other and i just feel like that story hasn't been told and we have lived through it and survived through it like really well and are walking away with an amazing experience um, so i in true product style i surveyed um, our women in product facebook group that would would a book like this be useful and people were like absolutely we would love to read something like this so i have my outline and as and when stories pop into my head i write bits and pieces but i haven't really i don't have the luxury unfortunately of sitting down and saying i'm going to write my book and i'm going to finish it in 15 days so I, so as and when <laughs> it's like different scenes from a movie i just write things down like i sometimes jot down on my phone and then i'm piecing it all together so yes some day that that is in the works thank you so thank you for sharing so many hair raising stories i know this friday is going to be a lot of thinking for me uh, i will certainly be coming back with more questions and and thoughts and learning to take Absolutely. away from you